Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me uh, back to Matthew chapter 5 as we're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, actually, today's message will close out that first section of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. The verses that we look at today will give conclusion to those eight Beatitudes and the the quality, the character that God is calling on us to have uh, in our hearts and minds. We'll see this morning the effect that will be lived out in the world when that's true. And so we'll look this morning at verses 13 to 16, and I want to cover the subject matter today, the power of influence. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the reminder in your word of the effect that your followers are to have in the world. Lord, we are not to live our lives in isolation from those around us in need. You have put us here for such a time as this to address the darkness in the world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we all examine our lives to see that if we are fulfilling your commands to make a difference. God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that when we are gone, it will have mattered. And may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Life on the Edge, Dr. James Dobson shares a very moving illustration of the power of influence. Now, granted, the illustration he shares is a negative illustration, and he would admit to that, but nonetheless, he says it just shows something of the power of the influence of even one. Dobson writes, Shepherds and ranchers tell us that sheep are virtually defenseless against predators, not very resourceful, inclined to follow one another into danger, and they're absolutely dependent upon their human masters for safety. Therefore, when Scripture says we all like sheep have gone astray, it is referring to our tendency to move as an unthinking herd and away from the watchful care of the shepherd. Dobson continues, he said, I observed this herd instinct a few years ago in a documentary. It was filmed in a packing house where sheep were being slaughtered for the meat market. Huddled in, pen, in pens outside were hundreds and hundreds of nervous animals. It is as though they could sense the danger. 
Then a gate was opened that led up a ramp and through a door to the right. In order to get the sheep to walk up that ramp, the handlers used what is known as a Judas goat. This is a goat that has been trained to lead the sheep into the slaughterhouse. The goat did his job very effectively and efficiently. He confidently walked to the bottom of the ramp and he looked back and then he took a few more steps and he stopped again. The sheep looked at one another skittishly and then they began to move toward the ramp. They began to follow the goat to the top where all of a sudden a door opened to the left that the goat scooted through quickly. The trap door then closed and all the sheep were forced to keep going through another passageway that led them to their deaths. Influence. You see, it can be either positive or it can be negative. Now, folks, there is a powerful tension in the New Testament that you and I need to live with. You see, the Bible tells us on the one hand that we're to live our lives in such a way that we keep our eyes on heaven and we lay up all of our treasures in heaven. We are to live for the eternal and not simply the temporal. But at the same time, the New Testament emphasizes for you and I that we are to live out our faith and we are to make a difference right here in this world. You know, Christians through the ages have understood that, maybe even a little better than our current generations. In politics, in art, in science, in finance, in education, in medicine, Christians have made huge strides and made a difference. The church has been at the forefront of orphanages, building orphanages around the world to take care of children who don't have parents. Homes to take care of the aging. Many of those have been established by Christians or, or church organizations. Some aspects of the current social work system can be traced back to Christians who were concerned with the less fortunate. It was Christians who helped bring an end to slavery. Christians also helped in prison reform to make prisons more humane. They've made great contributions in, in the freedoms and education of women. Christians were present in the advancement of civil rights. The Braille system for the blind was invented by a dedicated Christian, Louis Braille. The Salvation Army, Habitat for Humanity, the Red Cross, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, on and on I could go, all have Christian roots. Now folks, all of that brings us to these verses that we look at today that conclude the Beatitudes. If we live out the Beatitudes, without a doubt, we will be salt and light in our culture. I want you to remember the Beatitudes describe what a disciple's character is to be. It's no accident that Jesus addresses our character first. 
It's like Dr. Henry Blackaby said in Experiencing God, God cannot give a big assignment to a small character. And so God, first of all, builds our character that he can give us those big assignments. That's what the Beatitudes were about. They described the type of people that we're to be from our heart, from the inside out. And then with those things being in place, verses 13 to 16 describe the effect we will have out in the world. And so I suppose if you were to reduce these verses down to one single word, that one word would have to be the word influence. If we are the poor in spirit, if we are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if we are peacemakers, if we're willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake, then we are certainly going to be people of influence in the world. Christ is speaking of the impact that we're to have on our culture. Wherever God plants you, you are to be an influence for Christ in that arena. You are to be an influence for the gospel. I think of what Mordecai told Esther in the Old Testament. He said, Esther, for such a time as this, God has placed you right there where you are. The Bible tells us it's not the world that's to shape the church, it's the church that's to shape the world. In Romans 12, 1 and following, Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're to make sure we're influencing the world and not the world us. Now I imagine these words here in Matthew chapter 5 were quite a shock to the disciples. After all, look at their resumes. These were the common ordinary men of the day. Most of them were fishermen or farmers. They were certainly not the power brokers of the age. And also the, the, the great Greek philosophers like Socrates or his student Plato or his student Aristotle, they had already had their influence on the ancient world. The Greek world, the Roman world, the world uh, of the New Testament would have known all about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And yet Jesus did not say that they were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus looking at his disciples that day said you are you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world we learn here what Christ wants to do through his church and I want you to notice it's not specific it's broad and I think there's a point in that Jesus didn't simply say that we're to be salt in the world of education if that's where you are. It's true, but he didn't limit your influence to that. Or salt or light in the area of medicine or engineering or whatever area that might be. He looked at his disciples and he said in a broad way, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. And the light of the earth 
world. Wherever you and I go, we're to have a Christ-like influence. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is Christians are to stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay in the world. Christians are to stem the tide uh, of moral and spiritual decay in the world. Looking at his disciples that day, there, there is an emphasis in these phrases. It, it's as though Jesus were saying, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Now folks, think about that. Christians are pretty well the only ones in society that are going to hold the line on the moral and spiritual issues of our day. Isn't that true? If we don't hold the line on the moral issues of the day, certainly nobody else out there is going to. What a huge responsibility Jesus is pointing out here. And he used the metaphor salt that was that was happened to be one of the most precious commodities of that day. The Greeks described salt as being theon, divine. The Romans said sun and salt were the two most important things on the face of the earth. Sometimes Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's where the saying comes from, he's not worth his salt, or he is worth his salt. Our word salary comes from this same root word. Now I want you to think a minute what salt does. You know what it does. First of all, it adds flavor, doesn't it? Salt just makes everything taste better, doesn't it? Dr. Willis gets on to us uh, at staff lunch sometime because of the salt shaker on the table. He said, you know what? We're, we're killing ourselves today with the salt shaker on the table. And I know he's right. But have you ever opened up a can of some of this low-sodium soup? Not only did they take the salt out of it, I think they took all the taste out of it as well. Connie and I love popcorn. We, that's one of our nighttime snacks. And we'll fix two bowls because on my bowl, I like a little more butter and a little more salt. Last week at the movie, War Room, and some of you spoke about how much that movie meant. I put, I put under the butter dispenser and put some salt on the top. And so I have, she makes me eat down the first layer before she'll eat it. I love salt on it. Everything just tastes a little bit better with salt. Folks, as a believer, you and I are to bring a little bit of zing to an otherwise tasteless world. Somewhere along the line, we've been given the impression that a Christian is not supposed to have any fun. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
Have fun, but in good taste. Add a little joy to your environment. Oliver Wendell Holmes reportedly once said that he might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen that he knew hadn't looked and acted so much like undertakers. Salt also increases thirst. The world should look at our walk with the Lord and say, you know what, I want that kind of peace. Do you live your life that way? Has anybody ever been around you and they have said something like this? They've told you, I don't know what it is about your life, but you're different. I like the way you live your life, and I wish I had what you have. That's, what a, that's the effect a Christian's life is supposed to have. Back then also, perhaps a little more to, uh, than today, salt in small doses was even good for the land, the ground. Now you put too much out there and you'll kill everything. But if your tomato plants are rotting on the bottom, I had an extension agent tell me one time, if you'll dissolve a tablespoonful of Epsom salt in a gallon of water and pour the gallon of water around the base of the tomato plants, they'll quit rotting on the bottom. And mine did. But commentators are almost in unanimous agreement that the primary thing Jesus was talking about here was he was using salt as a metaphor to talk about we're to have a preserving influence on society. You see, back then they didn't have refrigeration system. They had to preserve meats with salt. That great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, when he died on African soil, they cut his heart out and they buried his heart in Africa and then they took his body and they put it in a box and in that box they covered David Livingston not only with African soil but also they packed his body in salt they closed up the box and sent him back to England to be married, uh, to be buried, married, buried. <laughs> to be buried. <laughs> That'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? Because Jesus said there's no marriage, no giving in marriage in heaven. Anyway, you know. But any anyway, meat back then had to be preserved. These people Jesus was, talk, were, was talking to, they were, they were fishermen by trade and fishing out there on the Sea of Galilee. They would catch their fish and they were going to carry it, much of it, down to the markets either in, in the cities around the Sea of Galilee or maybe even... Uh, uh, cart it all the way down to the fish market in Jerusalem. And to get all the way down there to the fish market in Jerusalem, time they got there, their fish would be spoiled. And so what would they do? They would pack it in salt to preserve it. Folks, that's a picture of the world and us. The world is rotting. And Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the world's not going to get better before Christ returns. The world's going to get worse and worse and worse. 
Seems like the more educated and advanced we become, the more educated and advanced we also become in sinning. The world's rotting. The world desperately needs your influence and my influence as followers of Jesus Christ. We are to help prevent decay. We are to permeate society. We are to have a prophetic voice. This is certainly one reason Christians have to take an active role on earth towards preserving society. The world is bad enough as it is. Think of where the world would be without any Christian influence whatsoever. In his autobiography, Johnny Cash tells the story of his older brother, Jack. Jack was just 14 years old when he died. Jack had a job cutting oak trees and defense posts. The money he earned helped to support their poverty-stricken family. They were just sharecroppers, cotton farmers in the state of Arkansas. Well, a terrible accident occurred one day, and Jack was severely cut by Saul. And he suffered late, laying in bed for a couple of days, suffering until he finally passed away. But even back before he died, when he was still an active woodcutter, Jack told everybody around him that he felt the Lord was calling him into the ministry. And that didn't surprise anybody because everybody around young Jack Cash knew what a man, a young man of faith and character and integrity that he was and how he loved the Lord. As late as 1997 in his autobiography, Johnny Cash said, You know, to this very day when I'm at a fork in the road, I will stop oftentimes and think about my older brother Jack and ask myself, what would Jack have done? He said, Now, unfortunately in my life, I've not gone the direction of Jack oftentimes. But nonetheless, every time I think of the moral and spiritual and ethical decisions in my life that I have to make, he said, I at least stop and think about Jack. That's influence. Until the time that God takes us out of here, folks, we're to be salt. But for salt to work, though, it's got to get out of the salt shaker. It's got to be rubbed in. And that's why we say we, we've entered to worship, but when we go out of these doors, we're going out into our mission field. Because the salt's got to get out of the salt shaker to do any good. As Craig Blumberg states, in light of the countercultural demands and the Beatitudes, one might think that Jesus was calling upon his followers to separate from society. However, here Jesus makes it clear that just the opposite is the case. Christians are to permeate society as agents of redemption. Agents of redemption. We've got a lot of people today that say Christians don't really belong in the government or in politics or on the school boards or city councils. I want to say, are you kidding me? You're going to turn all of those areas in society over to the unbelievers? And as the church, we're just going to walk away from all that? 
We're to be salt rubbed in. We're not to be separate. You can't, you can't reconcile just simply coming out of the world and, and having no interaction with everything in society. You can't reconcile that with Matthew 5.13. Jesus said you and you alone are to be the salt of the earth. But now I want you to think of a huge temptation or a huge danger. What can happen if we're not careful? Jesus tells us what can happen. Look at the second part of the verse. He says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In other words, he's saying there is the danger of the salt losing its influence and becoming tasteless. Now, many of you know... Sodium chloride today is a stable compound. So how could it even happen that the salt would lose its saltiness? Well, you have to understand that back then they gathered much of their salt around the Dead Sea. And it was loaded oftentimes with impure impurities and all kinds of minerals and what looked like salt they get it home and, and the salt would have been leached out by the rain and what they had looked like salt but it had lost its saltiness and so what would they do they would simply take it out and they would scatter it on the walking paths it wasn't good for anything and Jesus is saying to us, you better be careful because that same thing can happen in a disciple's life. I think a modern day application, he's telling us, you and I had better guard very carefully our walk with Christ. We'd better guard it. Because you can lose your saltiness. You don't lose your salvation, but you do lose your testimony your effectiveness. One of the most tragic cases I think of in the Old Testament is Samson. Samson was a man loaded with potential. But Samson evidently couldn't guard his eyes and his mind and his lust. And Samson, loaded with potential, God raised them up from birth and gave them this assignment to be one of the judges over Israel. And yet because Samson couldn't guard his life, he lost his saltiness. Yes, God allowed him one last thing where he was effective. But just think of how much more effective Samson could have been if he could have guarded his life. Incidentally, folks, the word tasteless here can also mean foolish. It's a play on words. The disciple who allows himself to become tainted loses his effectiveness, and that is a very foolish thing to do. Dr. D.A. Carson says, Disciples who lose their savor are, in fact, making fools out of themselves. A disciple who loses his testimony is making a fool out of himself. 
And so what must we consistently do? We must consistently remain unstained or untainted by the world. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Second thing I want you to see, not only, are, not only are Christians to stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay in the world, but also Christians are to dispense the good news of Christ in the world. He goes on here to say, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a, a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you and I live out the Beatitudes, we will shine in the darkness. We will bring light to the world. Now, folks, we're not the light. Jesus is the light. But what he's saying here is we are to reflect him. The world is not only dying in moral and spiritual decay and corruption, but the world around us is also suffering from a spiritual darkness. And you and I are being called upon to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the world thought with the period of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the problems of society would diminish. They put the emphasis on human reason and solutions. And folks, while we can be so grateful for many of the advancements in learning that they made, we've got to all admit the world, through knowledge, has not solved all of its problems. Knowledge alone hasn't done it. Something else is needed. And Jesus says here that something else that the world is in desperate need of and doesn't even know it, it's in need of you. You. Dispensing the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you and I do so, as the previous beatitude stated, we will be persecuted by the world because many of them will not receive it. Now, isn't that ironic? The only ones who are the hope of the world will be persecuted by the world. But nonetheless, Jesus said, you're to be the light of the world. You go in a dark room and you flick on a light switch and what happens? The darkness flees. Listen to what Peter says about the church being light in society. In 1 Peter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not received mercy but now you have received mercy. God has called you into his light and now you and I are to go out in the world and we're to shine that light. You're a chosen race. Peter's talking about Christians being light. 
But here again, there's a danger. Look at what Jesus says in beginning of the second part of verse 14. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. If you travel to Israel today, and particularly you go up around uh, the area of Galilee, and you'll notice that all of the towns and villages are built right up on the, the peaks of the hill. One modern day traveler commented at night as he was out around the Sea of Galilee. By the way, this is the Sea of Galilee in the, the background of our PowerPoint each week. Uh, but as he was looking at night, it pitched black out at night, and, and he was looking around the Sea of Galilee at all the little towns and villages up on, the, uh, up on the ridges and all the lights flickering. He said it reminded him of diamonds glistening when you put a diamond under the light. They built their cities up there. For one thing, for defense purposes, but another thing, they could be visibly seen easily. And at night, here are all these little towns and villages glistening. And here's a little Palestinian home where a woman gets a terracotta oil lamp and, and she lights the wick in it. Does she go over to a stand and, and put it there and then take a basket and cover it? Absolutely not. She puts it out on that shelf or on that stand so it lights up that little home. Jesus said it's, it's foolish for a disciple who has received him, the light of the world, if we try to cover up what he's done in our life, if we never open our mouths, we never tell anybody else about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we never dispense the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're concealing the light of Jesus, we're just as guilty as those compared to salt who allow their testimony to be corrupted. It's different, but the effect is the same. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has some powerful words for us. He says that the Christian community who conceals its faith in Jesus and never shares its faith has ceased to follow Jesus as Lord. So what's the solution? Let your light shine. Tell what Christ means to you. Tell what he's done. But notice the little caveat here. The little condition where to shine. But Jesus says in verse 16, we're to shine in such a way that we don't get the credit, but God does. He said when they see our good works, that word in the Greek for good means beautiful, lovely, attractive. People see our good works and, and, and they're drawn to it. And they're not that we, we don't do it to get credit. We give we do it to give glory to God, the change He's made in us. He says right here, glory. The word glory here is the word from which we get our modern day word doxology. Our lives become a doxology of praise to God, what He's done in us. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. 
He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Living our lives in such a way to be a doxology of praise to God. Showing others the life that comes through the one who is the light of the world. Showing them that the darkness that's in their minds and hearts, the light of the world can do something about that darkness. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me a moment. And as you do, as you do, I want you to think about all of those people in your circles of influence. Whether it's at home, at work, in the community, all those relationships that you have around you. You see, I want to personalize these verses. Let's not walk out of here thinking, you know what, everything he says is nice, but you know, yeah, the church does need to be salt and light. I want you to think about those relationships that you encounter. Jesus is saying, you are to be salt to them and you are to be light to them. Let your attention be drawn to them. Can you see their faces? You've talked to some of them. Some of them are going through some pretty deep stuff. Maybe it's with their marriage. Maybe it's with a child. Jesus has put you there in their life for such a time as this. Will you be salt? Will you be light to that person? I want you to remember their face this week. Now I want you to look at your own life a minute. Turn inward to look at your mind, your heart. Is there anything hidden in the deepest recesses of your heart or mind that would ruin your testimony? That would keep you from being salt and light? Let God deal with it. Is there a quietness to your testimony that nobody ever hears from you the hope that you have in you? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this generation, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. 
say, God, give me a boldness, give me a courage that is not naturally a part of my makeup and composure. Lord, as your disciples, as we leave this place in just a moment, may we leave with these words personally inscribed upon our hearts and minds that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. May it make a difference in the way I live my life this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.